Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have part one of my conversation with Jacob. Jacob is a socialist community organizer living in Philadelphia. He helps run the Community Action Relief Project, a mutual aid organization committing to sharing resources and redistributing wealth throughout the Kensington neighborhood and broader Philadelphia. He is on the show today to talk about his experiences in the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which, as he details it, was filled with corruption, institutional bigotry, and had cult-like behavior. This is an interesting conversation where we talk about political and social movements being run like cults. Here's part one of my conversation with Jacob now. I am very happy to have Jacob with me on the show today. Jacob is one of these people who has had an experience that we actually haven't talked enough about on the show. I talk a lot about how control comes in many different forms and different arenas and sometimes in places and spaces that people are not assuming especially when you're going because you feel that people will be of like mind and you think that people are going to have a certain kind of standard of behavior. Uh, and so you can lower your defenses, uh, especially when there's sort of a common cause. And so the reason, again, that I call this show indoctrination and not, you know, cults <laughs> is uh, because sometimes then people will be looking for cult groups that they're familiar with. And then if it's not that group, they'll think, oh, this other group must be safe because it doesn't have this cult name and doesn't other people haven't necessarily called it a cult. But this is about the nature of the relationship between kind of the people in charge and the people who go, but also sometimes the subtle and not so subtle forms of manipulation. So this is going to kind of expand the discussion in a way that I really like and I think is really kind of educational and is really good for knowing what to watch out for to keep yourself safer out there in the world. So I would love for you, Jacob, to do an intro about who you are and what brings you to the show. My name is Jacob, and among other things, I am an activist, uh, community organizer. I live in Philadelphia. I have for about four years, and I've done work serving the people here, you know, giving out food and hygiene supplies and such to the homeless. That is what I currently do in addition to running reading groups. And um, for several years, I was a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, uh, PSL for short, that made up pretty much the entirety of my activism from June 2018 to December 2020 when I was kicked out and I, I will be talking about that but in that time I did organizing uh, with the Black Lives Matter protests I was present at all of the 
Black Lives Matter protests that went on in Philadelphia last year in June 2020. I uh, was attacked with tear gas by the police. Uh, we organized against ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, and also did organizing in uh, the local community uh, in the neighborhood where our office was stationed against gentrification and things like that. So I guess I can get into how I ended up in the party. I grew up in Michigan. I lived there till I was 22 years old. And um, in college, I got drawn towards left-wing politics. I believed in healthcare for everyone. I saw the systemic uh, racism. And I grew up around a lot of sexism. And uh, I was raised by mo mostly women and mental illness and poverty in certain you know, members of my family. I just have always sympathized with those causes. So I got into indigenous rights and I went to the standing Standing Rock uh, Reservation when they were opposing the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I was part of the Black Lives Matter organizing in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 2014 and 2015. So I had this kind of radical background and I'd had a friend throughout college who had identified as a communist. And after I got into all that stuff, he started talking about his experience in a party called the Workers' World Party which the PSL actually split off of in 2004. So the founding members were former members of that. Communism is a touchy word. And I, in the interest of time, I don't really want to go into litigating those politics. I wanted to say that there is a lot of legitimacy throughout the world to the Marxist-Leninist tradition, particularly in the colonized world. We have the Black Panthers here. We have Angola and Burkina Faso and Vietnam and stuff. And so I was always particularly interested in that. But he was part of this organization and he introduced me to that kind of concept. And when I moved to Philadelphia, I was interested in joining something like that because I saw how wide reaching their participation and other causes were. So I messaged him and he said, there is PSL. Um, he had his disagreements with PSL, but I looked it up and realized there was a branch of PSL in my city, Philadelphia. This was early 2018. They were opening their new office slash community center in Philadelphia in March of 2018. And I went to the opening event and there um, they had some induction speeches. When you join the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, you have a six month candidacy period where you're taking classes and you're a candidate to join. So you participate as a member in many ways, but you don't get voting privileges and such. So they timed some induction speeches to take place at that event. That's a recruitment method and it's not in itself the wrong way to recruit, but I was very moved and it made me very interested uh, because they, they introduced the concept of a professional revolutionary, which means that you, you make fundamentally changing society in the interest of the masses a core part of your life. And they said, this is a group of people who devote their lives, and this is a real commitment. I love the idea of it and the atmosphere at that thing. So I expressed my interest. I began attending their reading groups, and eventually they reached out and um, invited me and a friend of mine to join. So I joined in June of 2018. So that's very interesting. And I want to go back to joining and what that means and the commitment that's made. There are a lot of different political groups throughout history that have been more cult-like, that have been extremist 
not just in their views, but in the way people are treated within the party and also how you have to all be of like mind and that it isn't just something that you join, but it's supposed to become you, become your whole life. There's never too much commitment that you can make to it, really to the expense of everything else in your life. And I'm wondering then what was the requirement for you? What was the, the commitment of time or anything else once you got involved? I will start not directly answering that question because this helps us get to it because there is just this entire lexicon I was introduced to that I slowly adopted through which to view all political work and the world. And, you know, I've later come to realize my own, like I use this lexicon to kind of judge my own morality, my own actions, my own wants and needs. It kind of you know, snuck into my mind. Like I said, the professional revolutionary concepts, we, we always talked about professionalism as a word, and it doesn't mean like, it is something like the professionalism at your job where you have to behave in a disciplined manner. Discipline is another, another one of those words. You have to have commitment. You have to abide by party discipline, which is the rules of the party, which is the mandates passed down from above. And one of the biggest concepts is called democratic centralism. That's a concept from um, Lenin's essay. It's a, a text called um, What is to be Done? And it's the idea that decisions, in, in a nutshell, decisions in the party are made democratically. And once decisions are made or once an elected higher body passes down their decisions, everyone in the party has to fall in line. And um, this was a, when Lenin came up with it, it was a historically specific thing and it can be interpreted in many ways. And in fact, it should adapt to the situation. So I, on the surface, this PSL's interpretation of democratic centralism was just the entire concept of democratic centralism that we were to understand. And so we had all these, rules introduced to us as new members that we were to abide by and it was because it was the centralism component you know the leaders the local steering committee and the national central committee um you know had made these rules ahead of time and so there were things like you have to stand behind party decisions you can't speak negatively about the party to anybody outside the party you can't publicly criticize the party including in on social media, you can't have arguments with any members within the party about disagreements in the PSL. You can't share any criticism you have with any one outside the party. And on social media, I will mention social media a lot because they monitor our social media. You know, what's so interesting about all of this, and, I, and I'm writing down these phrases, democratic centralism, and also abiding by party discipline. So, you know, when you hear these terms, I can hear how they can all be made to make sense and to not be at cross purposes, but they are at cross purposes. And so if it's a democratic situation, then the person in charge gets to decide the rules that everyone needs to follow by, which 
right, inherently isn't democratic, but is made to make sense within that because I guess somebody needs to be in charge. What then happens, of course, then as you're talking about is this idea of rights being taken away. Well, I think the point is about kind of empowering yourself in order to empower other people, while at the same time, I'm getting this sense of your own power being extracted away from you. Is that true? Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's just so hard for me to describe this because it's very much under the surface. It's very much subtextual. It's under the surface and it's part of the culture in such a way that most of the time leadership does not need to directly tell you to do these things or to act this way or to adopt this morality. Like these terms will come up and these have been used very legitimately with successful people who've liberated themselves. But this I just want to be clear, and you'll see as I go on, that this was the party's terminology functionally. This was how they wanted us to see things. So yeah, rights being taken away. I I was talking to my best friend earlier um, who lived with me while I was a member the whole time, and he was talking about how I would act in very uncharacteristic ways any time that we were discussing the party or that he was around that I was around the party or with him. His example he gave was we were at um, an event at the Liberation Center, our office, and some people were standing around bantering about a member of the party who'd come from out of town to give a talk. And I was kind of clamming up and I was clearly nervous that someone was going to say something negative and wrong. And um, in addition to that, there were things that we were explicitly told we were not to tell anyone, which is I mean, besides that we can't share our critiques, it was any decision discussed that was not publicly announced, anything about money. We paid dues to the local branch. We paid to be in the organization. Anything about money, we couldn't tell people how many people were in a particular branch. I can now, so I'll say when I started, it was around 20. When I left, it was around 100. So when my my best friend and I would discuss political things that we both knew about, Uh, locally, or just um, ideological discussions online or accusations online. He got very frustrated with me because he would criticize the party and say, I would say, like, if you if you were in the party, like if you knew what was going on, if you could listen to our discussions, you would know what what I was talking about, you know, you would know why we did that. But I can't tell you. Now, I just in conjunction with this, and this is the other part of it, was that we were so gassed up about our involvement in the party. We were the revolutionaries. We we called each other comrade, which is, you know, there's a legitimate history to that term, but I was called comrade more than I was called my own name. And I always had trouble with it. I was like, I'm just going to call you Walter. That's your name, right? <laughs> okay. I'll bring up Walter later. Like, okay. um, you know, and there was always this congratulatory tone in our text messages like after anything we did like congratulations comrades you did great everything whatever like I believe so much in our party I believe so much in our class and then the people need their party the people being the masses which I will come up later and I'll give more information on that so there was this just just this feeling that you were part of something huge that this party knew what it was talking about they had this like register that they spoke and and write in in their party when it when discussing party manners which you can read their liberation news and liberation school they had like a handful of 
of very respected and kind of worshipped leaders from national who were mostly like middle-aged and older who we just love because they had so much experience and, and whatnot. And so we just had all these heroes and stuff. Yeah. So let me just say, oh, it's so hard because in my mind, I now have this strange juxtaposition between the word liberation and the term lockstep. And I get very uneasy when both pop into my head at the same time. And what I think is also interesting is the use, as you're saying, of a certain register that people are are not only using similar language, and we've talked on this show before about language being a, a source of unification and also separation from people who don't get it and don't speak that language. And you get this feeling that, you know, we understand each other and we speak the same language, but it sounds like there were similar mannerisms, but also that you were called comrade that then you no longer had your individual identity. And it was important to you to hold on to that and to still call people by their name or to be called by your name, which says a lot about you, which also probably says a lot about why we're having this conversation and you're not still involved, among other reasons. And it sounds like there are a lot of points to come back to. And so pick up wherever you want to. So... I think I'll give some background, just a little bit more background on kind of the ideology and the life in the party. I've listened to a lot of episodes of your podcast, by the way, like it's really helped me process this. Your interview with a sociolinguist about the language of cults, the concept of a thought terminating cliche was very helpful to me because there was definitely an in-group, out-group mentality, and we encountered a lot of outside criticism of our party, like a lot. And we heard whispers of different scandals that had been going back, you know, certain years, but leadership either didn't, you know, apparently didn't know what they were talking about or would write them off, you know, say like, and so there were ways of completely dismissing outside critics that we all bought into. And one of the biggest ones that I'll mention is online. The adjective online is used a lot. It just means someone who spends an unhealthy amount of time on the internet, or they far overestimate the importance of disputes and, and things on the internet and stuff. I think it's a real phenomenon. You need to use the internet in a healthy way. But um, they introduced this, us to this concept of online, and it was they would just always talk about this throughout my whole time there, like there. This was in like people criticizing the party online, criticizing it in a principled theoretical way, saying, I disagree that you did this because this is a detriment to the movement, or this was a, a, a bad tactical decision or what have you. There was always this, they would say like log off, or they would call someone online, you know, these extremely online people, these online leftists, they would say, they would always say like, these people don't matter. What matters is the people the masses. And that's more of that lexicon I was telling you about, the masses, meaning there, there is truth to that. Again, you know, the millions of people in the United States, the billions of people around the world um, who live under ex, uh, exploitation and oppression, but they never had to really go into detail about what they meant. They never would address what the accusations were or what the dispute was. 
the argument would stop there online, you know, and everyone would feel this vindication, you know, of like, who I'm right. I'm part of the group doing, I'm doing the real work, you know, like I'm out there and these people are just sitting on the internet criticizing us. So there was that the masses, the people were accountable to the masses. We're not accountable to these online critics. These ultra leftists was another term, people who are uncompromising and, you know, are more obsessed with it, with purity and with everything going exactly the way they want. That's an ultra leftist, you know? So interesting. I just wanted to say here that, you know, also the idea of thought terminating cliche that I don't know if it originated with him, but he published about it. Robert J. Lifton, if anyone wants to read his book, uh, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism is I think published in 1961, but he talks a lot about different forms of undue influence, manipulation and language being one of them, but also how to shut down certain thinking and trains of thought. And it also seems as from the, the examples that you're giving too, that the group itself was very critical of all others and would group people as under some heading that then was some sort of defamatory heading. Yes. And I wanted to say too that in addition to it being against outside critics, it was used to browbeat inside critics who so much as brought up this criticism they were seeing. You know, you're why are you taking this seriously? We have organizing to do, we have work to do. You know, I was one of those people, you know, my friends, my very some of my very well read, very intellectually curious friends were you know, that way. But yes, I mean, I encountered a lot of critiques over the years and I'll go into this more, but a lot of people called it a cult while I was in it. And I, and I will, you know, I have said, I don't think it, the version of it that I was in was a cult. This is more nuanced situation, but a lot of people called it a cult. My own best friend got frustrated a few times and said, you're in a cult. And, you know, I would just be like, it's, it's not a cult, like, you know, whatever, but you know, but I, 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 I never questioned why are so many people angry at this party and especially former members. Like we would see a lot of, we would see a lot of former members criticizing it. And I'm like, why do so many people leave this party on bad terms? Why? And, and those people who left on bad terms, occasionally they would address it and they would, they would give you an account of what happened and like that person's ridiculous and that's their actions. And they're just like, they have a chip on their shoulder and they're just online ranting about us instead of going out and doing the work. There was this kind of flip side to it, this opposing idea of the masses and the people. So there was this kind of mystification of the people in our neighborhood who don't know anything about the left or socialism or feminism or these are the people we need to worry about. And, and it's just this magical group. We are accountable to these people. And I would, I always wanted to ask, like, how are we accountable? Which people do you know? Which people trust you? Which demographics? The masses, there's so many strata to the working class. There's so many racial strata. So which neighborhood? We're in a single neighborhood, you know, and we're mostly talking to homeowners, whereas now I work with mostly you know, houseless people and sex workers and things like that. And they had no roots there. And they even had ideas that were, you know, so it was like, it was like this, this term of the masses is being used as like emotional blackmail, like you are betraying the masses by wasting your time and energy engaging with these critics. You are an undisciplined member. This might be a tangent, but I also just want to mention this, this kind of latent 
anti-intellectualism that I started noticing because this concept of online was also, there was a version of it that was kind of like ultra or there's a term LARPer, which is there's the, the hob, yeah, the hobby of live action role play. You put on a suit and you pretend you're, you know, knights and, um, but it's, it's used on the left overall when, when people want to dress up and like, they, they just wear like weird communistic or anarchistic clothes and they're, they're just looking for an adventure and, you know, a game to play. So, but that term was, was weaponized against me once because we had a group, we had, this was all in group texts. We coordinated largely in a group text and I was asking too many historical or theoretical questions. And at our retreat, um, a member of the steering committee, one of three members of our steering committee, Tamor said, you don't need to be asking questions all the time about the Soviet Union in the chat, just because you think that that's what communists are supposed to be talking about. We need to organize. We need to be doing the work. And like, I, I took that seriously. Like, I, am, I just feel like such a, I mean, I can be such a, so hard on myself. It's just part of who I am and my upbringing. But like, I was like, oh, you're right. I'm just pretending. I'm not, I'm not a real communist. And my own intellectual curiosity, I've always been a nerd. And I felt bad for my own, for trying to discuss these things with the group, you know, for being curious. I felt like, no, you have to have quote unquote people skills. You have to go out there and talk and knock on doors and, and uh, attend three hour long party meetings and attend a party seminar on Zoom and attend a reading group and attend these events, you know, that's what the communism really is, which is in effect, just like doing work for the party is really what communism is, not asking questions, not thinking, just curiosity. What's so striking about what you're saying too, is that it's brought up as though it's an either or proposition rather than a both. And you can be curious, you can ask those questions. You can want to find out about the history and the connection to what you're involved in to its potential historical roots. And it seems like you like to understand the continuity. And I think that gives it some sort of weight, some credibility and some context. And Instead of your questions being answered, you were told there was something wrong with you for asking them and that it meant something about you, that you were then behaving in a way that wasn't right for that party and you weren't showing yourself to be right, which is it's not something that I think should be presented as being mutually exclusive, although it is usually in cultic groups <laughs> uh, because they, you know, the, the people who were demonized are the are the often the intellectuals, the fact checkers, the the ones who ask why and how. And when you're not given the answer, that's one piece that's already suspicious. But when you are made to feel bad for even asking, you know, those are the things I want people who are listening to this to really record as a red flag. Absolutely. And I want to be even handed because I I will be dismissed by anyone from the party who finds out about this. They'll say, they'll say, get over it. Like my own self-love and, and my own belief in my own individual morality was wearing away. There's this concept of individualism, they said, which is the individual putting themselves over the need of the party and therefore the masses. And I was always like, 
I don't want to go to this today. I'm an individualist. I'm not dedicated. I was hard on myself to bring this up too while I'm talking about it. There ended up being this explicit rebuke against discussions of mental health. I have bipolar disorder. I have Asperger's. I, I have had a, a serious acute anxiety disorder before, and I understand that these things are disabilities full stop. They're debilitating. And going out and facing police violence and feeling obligated to spend X amount of time doing these things, or you're and you know, you're a you're a selfish individualist, you know, wears down on your mental health. But I remember one time a member suggested in our group chat, uh, or didn't even suggest, alluded to the fact that another organization or another branch of the party would have mental health check-ins at the beginning of meetings, which I mean, on the face of it, doesn't that make sense? You are literally face-to-face -face with the most horrible things that happen in society when you're an organizer like this. And Walter, the straight white man who was hands down the most influential member of our branch and was one of three members of our steering committee, including his girlfriend, his long-term girlfriend, and then another member, shot it down and said, that is rooted in a suburban, petty bourgeois ideology and um, identity politics, and it's not appropriate for um, a professional organi organization like this. And then several other members agreed, using the term professionalism, like, we're a professional organization, like, that's not appropriate, you know? And um, in addition to that, a lot of one of the most active members in the branch would would go on social media and post things that are addressed to other activists. Like there is no such thing as burnout. You don't get burned out. You know, the revolution requires discipline. You know, the people, the, the people suffering under oppression and exploitation, you know, like you don't have a right to. It was just this, like, these people have clearly never experienced mental illness. It's, I mean, leadership selects, it selects for the, I don't know, I, I want to say the robots, like, and I, again, I, I mean, I took that seriously because I want, I respected these people. I wanted them to like me. I'm like, am I really depressed right now? Am I really burned out? I want to just say something about burnout and also mental health. In most groups that I hear about, of course, it's going to be a self-selected group. People will sometimes say to me, listen, have you heard about this group or have you heard about that group? And I will say first, just letting you know, if I've heard about it, it's probably not a good thing. So be prepared. So what I have become aware of over and over again is that there really isn't space for people to have mental illness, for it to be taken seriously, for it to be addressed, for there to be an awareness of the taxing nature of the group and how it's going to interact with mental illness. And also, even without mental illness, how many groups, because of their intensity and because of how much you are supposed to look inward in suddenly this really horribly negative way can cause anxiety, can cause depression, can cause chronic fatigue, can cause uh, a state that would be called situational, so situational psychosis, situational depression. So 
not only does it happen that people who come into the groups are, are really not cared for in the way that they should be, but things like mental health checks are usually just a way to protect the group legally, saying that they've done their due diligence, wanting to make sure that nothing's happening that's flagrant that might cause them to be in the news suddenly because someone has gone off and they don't really care. The other thing is, yes, there is burnout. There is a reason that people need to rest. There is a reason that people need to nap. There's a reason that we also check out. If you keep needing to work and beyond what your capacity is physically or psychologically, you do burn yourself out in terms of your emotional and physical resources. And so that is a thing. But if you're taught that it's not, what they're saying is your activism and your activity is what matters to us, not you taking care of yourself. So how much you keep the machine well-oiled, like keep the organization going is more important than you taking care of you. Yeah, I stayed in this organization so long because I was emotionally vulnerable because I don't have time to go into my past, but I am some, like I've said, I'm someone who has always been very hard on myself. I fear abandonment. I'm, I'm someone who is drawn further into the party when I start. Related to that, my friend used this really great phrase the other day to describe it. There's a strategy of churn in the party, is what he calls it. And another friend of mine calls it the meat grinder, which is they take in hopeful, passionate young revolutionaries and they squeeze them dry like fruit. And then they discard them either through directly kicking them out or through just driving them insane to the point that they leave. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Jacob. What an interesting person who has worked so hard to put together a story that is one that is so unique for a lot of people to hear on this show, but also highlights so many of the same issues that we've heard about before. Jacob has a very wonderful, intelligent, and thoughtful way of presenting his information, not wanting to defame, not wanting to make something overly dramatic, but just talk about what it's like when you get involved in something with the best of intentions and with so much promise and with so many promises. And what happens to you when things start to fall apart and you start to see evidence to the contrary? One of the things that he talked about that I want to make sure to highlight is this idea that when you're involved in a group that is controlling, or in a relationship with someone who is controlling you. He said that there are so many people who leave on bad terms, and in fact asked, why do so many people leave on bad terms? Well, I think the answer to that question is that people are going to be leaving on bad terms because the terms are dictated by the person in charge. And if the person in charge doesn't want you to leave, it will always be on bad terms. It's not what they want you to do. 
So they will make you feel you're wrong for leaving and that you have abandoned the cause, that you don't know how to take things seriously, that you're being frivolous, that you're being selfish. But really, ultimately, what is the cause in these movements? By and large, it's to feed the ego of the leader. So, yeah, you're going to be abandoning the cause if that's the cause. And it is something that actually you should abandon if you notice that the organization that you belong to or the relationship that you're in is supposed to be satisfying you in a certain way, but also serving a particular purpose, either for the world or for you individually. And it's just not. And no matter what, no matter how much devotion you give, no matter how long you wait, no matter how much you try, it's still not getting you any closer to that. In fact, usually taking you far away and farther away from your life, from all that you thought it was going to be, then you do need to abandon that cause. Because again, the cause is self-serving for the person who has roped you in and who is keeping you in. I will often say, and I've said this before on the podcast, that sometimes you can tell about the nature of an organization, the true nature of an organization, and the true nature of a person when you say no to them, when you even just say, maybe, when you say, I need to take a break, when you say, I'm just not sure this is what I want, or this is really what I signed up for, then you'll see. Can they let you go? Can they respect your decision? Can they let you decide for yourself what's best for you? Will they let you or will they need to punish you? And if punishing you or the threat of punishment doesn't work, will they flip the coin and just make you feel guilty, make you feel like you're a terrible person or a weak person? See if you can take the risk, if it doesn't put you in physical danger, to say no. And if it does put you in physical danger, I would get support. I would still find a way to leave, but do it with support and do it with protection. But again, if it doesn't put you in physical danger, then I would, on your own, give it a shot and say, hmm, I don't know. I think I'm going to skip the next meeting. or. I think I'm going to go out with friends this weekend and we can do our own thing. See how they take it. If they become angry, if they become jealous, if they become threatened, and if they don't make I statements and they only make you statements, if they don't say that makes me, those are I statements, even if they have the word me, <laughs> This makes me feel threatened. This makes me feel bad. This makes me worried about abandonment. But instead, turn it right back on you and defame you. Then you know what you're dealing with. And you will also know that it's not that you left too soon. It's really that at any time, typically, this would be the way it would be reacted to. So it's not that you didn't try hard enough. It's not that you didn't give it long enough. 
because that will also be used as a ploy to keep you. Know that the way they react then is typically the way they're going to react at any time. That month, the next month, five years down the road. So if there's a voice inside of you that says, it's time, then it's time. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.